Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Hello and welcome back to The Close Reads here on The Close Reads Podcast Network. I am David Kern and I am joined by old friends Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi and Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Thanks. It's going great. How are you, David? I'm well. We are here to discuss... Books nine and ten. I had there is a fly flying into my face repeatedly as I'm trying to do this intro. So what? I am also on a odyssey that is going to a journey of the soul. for the next hour because there's no way for a fly to get out of this room. So uh, we're here to discuss books nine and ten <laughs> of the Odyssey. We are going to be using Emily Wilson's translation. If you have not been paying attention the last few weeks, but thought I really like books nine and ten, let it be known to you that while we discuss this, the text we will be referring to is Emily Wilson's recent translation. Before we dive into that though, just want to remind you that you can join the conversation on social media at Close Reads Pods on Instagram and on Twitter. You can sign up for the Close Reads newsletter at closereads.substack.com. And of course, you can join the conversation on Facebook on the Close Reads podcast discussion group. If you haven't joined the group yet, you can type those words into the search bar on Facebook and that group will show up and you can click that little join button and we will assuming you are a legitimate person, a uh, not a cyclops or some kind of witch, then we will let you join the group <laughs> join the conversation. I mean, if you're a cyclops, we might let you anyway, just out of curiosity's sake. Um, let's dive into this right away because I have a question. I need some help. And you two are... Well, I was going to say you're my only hope because that's what people say, but it's not true. There's lots of people who could help with this. But... It sounds like a setup, David. It sounds like a setup. Like... I need some help. It sounds innocuous and innocent, and I have a feeling it's not going to be. <laughs> Why ever would you think that? I feel um, great about it. I'm ready so, to dive in. I'm I, all in. I, I, books 9 and 10, I guess we should summarize them quickly because a lot happens in the Odyssey. Books 9 and 10 are involve giants and giants with only one eye and then no eyes after that. And they involve being kidnapped by witches and... Uh, lots of people dying on rocks and through various um, shipwrecks. Did that about cover it? Would you say? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, and magic flowers that make magic, you forget. True. To- true. Yeah. Magic flowers. Do we need to add uh, any other, any other words? I actually have a question also, but maybe I can reserve it until after you ask yours, David. It's no. Okay. I'm going to with it now. Since it's <laughs> early on the podcast. Go for it. Why this is. This podcast is being hosted on the Searcy suite of podcasts. And I guess my question... On a property owned by the Searcy Institute, you're saying? Yes. (laughs) Why did you guys name yourself after this kind of bewitched goddess who turned Odysseus's men into pigs? That's Uh, my question for you. um, Why did you guys name yourselves after her? Well, I'll set aside the fact that the, the information, the answer to this question is readily available in multiple places. Um, but uh, the real story is that um, back in the 90s, my dad was working on the book that ultimately became 
classical education, the movement sweeping, sweeping America, which he wrote with Dr. Veith, Gene Edward Veith. And while they were writing the book, he was advised because of the travel he was doing and the research he was doing and all that sort of thing to create a business for basically, you know, ostensibly for tax purposes. So he figured no one's ever going to see this. No one's ever going to know about this business, anything like that. So he tells the story that he's driving down the road one night and was just putting acronyms together in his head. You know, consulting and integrated resources and classical education was one that came to his head, something like that. Um, uh, and he said, okay, that works. And then once he put it together, he just started laughing because he realized it said, when you put that together, it was Cersei. So yes. he went with it because he thought it was it was sort of funny and no one else would ever see it, right? It was just kind of like, you know how we, legally a lot of states require people to to name their homeschool? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you do that and you think, but you can't change it, it turns out. So people do that and they just put something together and then 10 years later, they regret it because they didn't really think anybody was ever going to see it. Uh-huh. This is kind of what happened there. Although I don't know that he really regrets it. Um, so it's an acronym that was kind of, as the company grew, it, it came in to be a thing. And there were times when he could have changed it, but he didn't. Um, but then he does like to say, Cersei, the goddess, turned men to pigs, but we are trying to help you turn your pigs into men. <laughs> Aww, that's actually that's a really good adorable. Response. That is adorable. Um, so anyway, th- there's a, but then there's also a number of other things that come into it because um, the root word for church, which is kirke, is related to the Greek word or something like that. There's a number of different factors into it that they kind of redeem the name a little bit. But we've, you know, or years ago, I think there was brief discussions about changing it. But at a certain point, that's more more pain than, than it's <laughs> than it's worth. Um, so that's the that's the brief story. Um, also, because of magic, right? <laughs> I have had people at Circe conferences like kind of sidle up to me and ask that question, like, "Why do they name themselves after this?" <laughs> Just say, just say magic. It's magic because of the magic. Because of magic. Pretty succinct answer. No, I mean, you know, it is an acronym, and it, you know, that that's that's the story. It's not that it's not that interesting, but in some ways, it's kind of funny. Um, We get that question all the time. So I think Dad did a podcast where he gave his spin on it as well, or you know, his version of the story or whatever. Spin sounds negative, like he's trying to like spin it. His version of the story, which of course it being his story, you should probably listen to his version and not my version. Um, But let's let's dive into this book because book nine, uh, called "A Pirate in a Shepherd's Cave." Um, which is an interesting t- title that we can discuss if you'd like. It begins with this line, Wiley Odysseus, the Lord of Lies. And then it says answered. And then he tells, he, that's when he tells his story. So I was struck, taken by, interested in the, that line that she uses there to describe Odysseus. Wiley Odysseus, the Lord of Lies. Mm-hmm. So that seems to be the concept of Odysseus's cleverness comes up throughout the whole book, right? He refers to himself as that. People refer to him as that. Um, the goddesses, the gods and the goddesses even refer to him as clever or wise or whatever. We get this, the word polytropos is how, is the Greek word for him that at the beginning of the book, she translates as, um, what is it? Complicated. But mm-hmm. other people say a man of many ways, you know, there's different, 
different ways that that's been translated. I think Lattimore says man of many ways, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. Yeah, that is Lattimore. <clears throat> so here we get this, we get this sort of sense of him being a liar being connected to this sense that he's wily. And that precedes him telling the story to Alcinous, or however you pronounce his name, of what he experiences, leading into the story of the Cyclops and um, then on to the story of Circe, of course. So I was thinking about this concept of him being clever. And then I got to thinking, what, what does this book mean when it calls Odysseus clever? Like, in what ways are we supposed to see him as clever? And, and then more importantly, is Odysseus, is the reference to Odysseus being clever always a good thing? Is his cleverness, his wildiness, whatever, considered a, a virtue, like an inherent good? I feel like that's, especially in the, as he's in the part of the story where he's telling the story himself, you know, to the, what the Phaeacians, um, mm-hmm. to get them to help him. That's something that is worth thinking about. Yeah. We generally, he's generally considered this great, clever hero, you know, almost an ideal type in a lot of ways. Yeah. So, but then, but then I got to thinking just for some more context before I turn this over to you. And basically I'm giving you time to think right now. Um, I was also thinking about how, you know, you, you can make the case that he kind of actually makes some blunders, right? Even in this book, or he makes choices. I won't say blunders. He makes choices that perhaps could be questionable, right? Like for example, when he's at the, um, that the Island with the giants and, um, he basically gets his men. He's like, let's go. We're we're going, we're leaving these guys behind. So he gets them into the boat. And then he says after that, yeah, we left some guys behind and they died. Um, he's, there's this sort of constant sense that he's trying to get out of danger as quick as possible. And sometimes that means, such as in the Cyclops cave, sacrificing a man or two, you know, um, maybe making his men do things they don't want to do that were dangerous that ultimately led to their demise. So there are a lot of questions about what does his cleverness lead his men into? Mm-hmm. So is his cleverness always meant to be a virtue? Is this like a, how do you, how do you read that? Tim, you just were the last person to make a noise. So I'm going to ask you first. <laughs> I, I you reminded me of your existence. So I turned to you. <laughs> Homer, I think wants us to see it as a virtue. I think, um, but it's complicated because when we think of the virtues, like one of the first virtues that we think of is honesty. And Odysseus is not always honest. But it, so I, I talked a couple podcasts ago, I kind of tried to frame Odysseus as the honey badger from that meme that was so big, whatever, eight years ago. Um, or that little YouTube video, the honey badger just kind of does whatever he wants. I mean, the honey badger um, takes the honey from the bee's nest and he somehow doesn't get stung. You know, he, he fights with cobras and he somehow ends up victorious. He, he can do anything. And I think that we're supposed to see his cunning and his many stories, cleverness in the light of a man that gets things done, but not, I think, in like he gets things done in this pragmatic American sense. I think in this sort of, in a more dignified and glorious sense that he keeps his men from danger uh, most of the time, that he 
returns to Ithaca, that he will fight with the suitors. He'll be reunited with his wife because he finds a way to, and he at least was a major part in concocting the whole idea that won the war at Troy. He's the one who came with the idea of building this giant model as a gift that ends up winning the war for them. So I, I think part of why he should be esteemed as clever is because he's fighting for his life and he's fighting for people's lives. And he's keeping them alive process of demonstrating yeah. this remarkable governess. He's not keeping I mean the whole the whole the book tells us from the beginning that everybody dies. But the, during the course of his travails in the Mediterranean, he's constantly fighting to keep them alive. And many he does save his men from the Cyclops. Sure, two get eaten, but the rest of them are saved. I mean okay. he's one man basically fighting against all of the forces of nature as marshaled by the Greek pantheon. And he, sure, yeah, he loses them all. He keeps them alive for a long time. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair, I guess. Um, I think it's just interesting to think about, I mean, it's a little bit anachronistic to do this, but it's also ethical. To, I mean, interesting to think about sort of the ethics of some of the decisions that he makes, like the concept of, like you can have an interesting conversation with 16-year-olds about the concept that he sacrifices two of his men to save the others, right? Wow. Like these are age-old ethical questions that that we could, you know, anachronistically bring into our conversation on the of the book. Um, Heidi, what do you think about this? Uh, I think it's the central question of the Odyssey. So it's, I think what you're asking. So, so is, we should we should move on. You're saying I'm saying it's it is it's 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 a problem. It's it's not easily solved. This is the ambiguity of the book. You know, last week we talked about whether or not Odysseus sleeping with goddesses was was adultery. Under the Christian ethic, it is. Under the Greek one, it isn't. That's black and white. But the question of whether or not Odysseus is uh, his polytropos, the man of many ways thing, whether that is a virtue or a vice, is less clear. Like it's, it, it's, it is the central question of the book. And I think that we come to a unique crisis point in these two books. Like, I think there's a reason why it's coming up now in our discussion of books nine and, and 10, that this is the crisis point in which that question is overshadows everything. And I, I'm I'm looking as you guys have been talking. I I'm looking back in book seven when he first lands in Phaeakia, and he uh, book seven spends a lot of time telling us how carefully Odysseus is paying attention to the surroundings in Phaeakia. Um, so in book seven it says Odysseus sat patiently and prayed um, as as he's being led to the palace by Athena who disguises herself as the young girl. It taught it talks about what he's seeing as he goes. Like he's paying attention. He's looking around him. He's taking in his surroundings. And then on page 211, uh, Line 82, it says, Odysseus approached the royal house and stood there by the threshold made of bronze. His heart was mulling over many things. 
the palace of the mighty king was high and shone like rays of sunlight or of moonlight. And then it goes on to describe the palace and the people who are in the palace and everything he encounters, but he's pausing and taking it all in. It's clear that before he goes in there, he has planned what he is going to say. Mm-hmm. He knows exactly how he is going to tell his story. And the idea is, and again, this is the moral ambiguity that this brings to us, is Odysseus is telling the story slanted. Like he's telling it in a way that is designed to get the Phaeacians to help him get home. And so yeah. scholars from that point on have asked the question, was Odysseus telling the truth? And mm-hmm. we don't know. We don't know. Well, so. If you, um, my understanding is that we'll get to this later, but when he tells, when he kind of rehashes the stories with Telemachus and with Penelope, whom he tells the story to twice, he tells it slightly differently than he what does. he tells to the Phaeacians. My dad apparently has a believes or, ha, or has a theory, um, and I'd have to have him come on to explain it because I don't know where he's exactly what his text, textual defense is. Um, he he has a theory that much of what happens in the story to the Phaeacians never happens. That right. like a lot of it is him, Odysseus, making a story, making the story sound more epic, you know, no pun intended. Right. To to win the favor and services of the Phaeacians. Right. And that's I mean, that's a pretty common theory. Lots of lots of commentators say Odysseus made the whole thing up, like it's none of it's true, or if it is true, it's slanted. So but Again, this is a story, and this is a story within a story within a story. Like, we're several right. layers down at this point. Right. And so, that, and, and over the years, depending on the cultural context and the religious context, people interpret that differently. You know, Dante puts Odysseus in the eighth level of hell for being a liar and for fraudulently throwing his men to the wolves. And, and so, there's e- even in other, other great literary people. I mean, the Aeneid portrays him as a liar. Virgil, yes. Like, so Odysseus is, has been morally ambiguous, ambiguous, what? Ambiguous. Morally ambidextrous. He's ambidextrous. There were so many layers to it that he had to add a syllable. I love to just go off (laughs) the rails there. But that's what's interesting about it. And I I would say, if you're going to judge him negatively for something, it's got to be this. Leave the adultery thing aside. Let that go and focus on whether or not Odysseus is being the man of many ways, the complicated man, that the man who will do anything to get home. Let that be the moral ambiguity of this story. Hmm. You know, there's been some, I don't know if controversy is the word, but lots of debate about whether Emily Wilson should have translated mm-hmm. um, that opening line, Polytropos as complicated. Um, and I, the more I think about it and the more I read her translation, the more I like that she did that. I don't know if I would have chosen that specific word, but I think when you, when you get a, get a line, like uh, when you get a, a translation, like what Lattimore did with men of many ways, it emphasizes the concept of his journey, like actual yeah. path, so to speak that he's taking. I know it's on water, but you know what I'm saying? It emphasizes the fact that he's lost physically lost and trying to make it home, which that is a key part of the story. But the, 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 the concept of him being complicated I think gets in some ways at more the soul of the word polytropos than like man of many ways does. And it gets at kind of like the, the um, complex character that, that is going, that you're describing Heidi. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that comes back to here in this opening line of nine, he's 
wily. He's a wily Lord of Lies. And she's clearly, based on using the, her use of parenthetical, making a connection between the concept of wily and the concept of lying, you know, mm-hmm. between cleverness and lying. And like to call him Lord of Lies, I don't, how does Lattimore translate that? Does any, do you know about any other? I meant to look it up because I think this is a bit too negative. Um, but I didn't end up getting to it. So, uh, but I, I, I think that when that's my, my struggle with Emily Wilson is I feel like she's so on the nose with, if there's a way to translate something that casts him negatively, she does it. And so I, not necessarily, I think, because she doesn't like him. She obviously loves the book. You don't spend your life translating something you don't love. But she's trying I, I to emphasize she, ambiguity. Yeah, she's emphasizing the ambiguity so much that I think a lot of her translations end up being pretty on the nose negative. This is very negative. So uh, cunning is you know, when he he calls himself cunning. He's referred to as cunning. That that could be. I think that's probably the closest thing we're going to get to. You can be cunning in a bit of a neutral way, or you can be cunning in just a wholly negative way, or you can be cunning to do something righteous. So that's that's more of what we're trying to get at. With that, that's more of how he's presented, I think, in the book. Okay, can I can I ask you guys a question? So yeah. it, we're getting into this conversation that we have on close reads all the time, and it's part of I think why I love doing the podcast is because okay. What does Odysseus, how do we view him today? What is our understanding of his character today? And he is nothing if not complicated today. For that reason, I like that word. I like that word that Wilson chooses. But the, the question kind of a little bit farther back, which is much harder to answer, is does Homer see Odysseus as morally complicated or as like a pretty good guy. And I'm going to, I'm going to make the case that I think that Homer thinks he's a pretty good guy. And there's something about his stature and standing in society and maybe even his kind of metaphysical standing, which makes him exempt from sounds exhausting that's not right i don't want to say exempt from like the rules of truth telling because i think that he that his stature makes him a rule maker more than it makes him a rule follower now i sound a little bit like it's a kind of if you know nietzsche it's a kind of a nietzschean kind of view like there are these great heroic characters before classical athens and they strode the world and they didn't care what people thought and i think nietzsche is actually kind of creating these I, I don't think he's actually historically quite right about that but i do think that he's tapping into something that i think is real and true which is i think that heroic Greece had a vision of great men as exemplars. And part of being exemplars is not just being strong. It's not just being courageous. It's not just being mighty, but it's also like a willingness to take matters into your own hands and to forsake what we would think of as like the normal bonds of moral action because you have to do radical things to be a leader of men and to save them from the Cyclops and to cross the Wine Dark Sea. 
Agreed. You're exactly right. The Greeks would have valued that, which is what Virgil condemned in the Greeks. And that's why he condemns Odysseus, is he says Odysseus is the perfect Greek, and, he, that, and he's a liar, and he's a schemer, and he's cunning. So I, do, I, I did go get my other two translations that I have readily available. And in Lattimore, it, line one of book nine is, then resourceful Odysseus spoke in turn and answered him. Okay, so that's neutral. But I like... I like Fitzgerald because he's my favorite translator. And he says this, Odysseus, the great teller of tales. Huh. I think that's better. I think that's probably more, I mean, I don't read the Greek, but that could go one way or the other. You can be a great teller of tales in a good way. You could be a great teller of tales in a bad way. And, and, and that, I think, is what Homer leaves open to posterity. But I agree with Tim. I think Homer would have said a man who does and is exempt from normal moral laws and who is who who will do anything to achieve his goals is that's a good thing. That's good. It, can I make a comparison? Mm-hmm. I, I think let's compare Odysseus to um James Bond. James <laughs> Bond like, That's good, actually. You watch a James Bond movie, and he's so clever. He's so smooth. He's, he's wily. And he also does things. He sleeps with women that he doesn't know. He, um, he kills people. And we get to the end of the movie, and you kind of walk out, and you're like, man, James Bond is awesome. Uh, you know, oh, except for that, some of that stuff that he does, the philandering and the, um, you know, the kind of like the brute killing in cold blood. Ah, that, I don't like that, but man, he's awesome. And I, and I think so that we have this kind of like two convictions about James Bond at the same time. One of them is he's a man who knows how to get things done. And the other is, and he has to break rules to do it. And we don't like that. And I think with Homer, Homer's, <laughs> Homer's just, just going to say, I just like that he breaks rules and gets things done. And so be it if he has to see, sleep with Circe and so be it if he has to sleep with Calypso. He's a different type of man. And I'm right. not going to feel any moral compunction, I hope that's the right word, about those actions. Because I think he's um, um, like unequivocally virtuous. I don't mean to imply that he doesn't think that Odysseus messes up sometimes, but I think that his screw-ups are more tactical than they are moral in Homer's eyes. Right. Well, and there's this great softening influence upon Odysseus, which is his home and his wife and his son which I think James Bond is a perfect comparison if James Bond was doing it all to get home to his wife, right? Like that's, there's, that's, this thing about Odysseus is that he has a great soul, that that he has a capacity to to be able to put into one category the lies he's telling to Alcinous and, and then also have this great deep and tender love that is, you know, very human, full of pathos and longing 
um, and vulnerability towards his homeland. And that's the thing that makes Odysseus a good man. And even I think Homer knew that Odysseus had to have something human or else he ends up just being James Bond. The James Bond comparison is is interesting because it says so much about, you know, you compare these great characters, these sort of legendary figures in any great work of art, and you begin to really get at what a culture values in or considers heroic or values in a hero or or whatever. You know, you mm-hmm. could do that throughout throughout time. It says, James Bond says a lot about what our time, what the twenty what a twentieth yeah. century and then into the twenty first century sort of hero should look like. Um, but that, you know, that version of James Bond looked very different than like, you know, the John Wayne character from when the Westerns were popular. And that's going to look very different than whatever was showing up in 19th, 18th and 19th century literature and so forth. Um, do you, do you think that, so then, so then are we in agreement that, well, Heidi, do you agree with the concept that like his mistakes then were, are tactical and not sort of, in yes. Greek eyes, they'd be more tactical. So Absolutely. there's this thing I've been thinking about um, in book 10. I think this is a good, a good way to continue this. In book 10, in the translation that we're using, it's line 27 or something like that. Um, and he is, it says, he made Zephyr blow so that the breath could carry home our ships and us, but it was not to be. Our folly ruined us. For nine days and nights we sailed, and on the tenth our native land appeared. We were so near we saw men tending fires. Exhausted, I let sweet sleep overcome me. I had been doing all the steering, hoping that we would get home sooner if I did, but while I slept, my, man be- my men began to mutter, saying that the great Aeolus gave me gifts, silver and gold. And then they try to open it. He falls asleep. They try to open the, the gifts. And then they open the gifts, it causes them problems. And then, you know, they, they go back to ALA's people and they send them away. So he, she translates this as our folly ruined us. And it seems to be that, you know, on the one hand, there's greed, possibly sloth, if you want to be critical of Odysseus. So when the book talks about folly, and that's a word that he uses a couple times, he even says, you can blame my men if you want, or you can blame me for going to sleep. Um, is what's the what do we what is this word folly meant to mean to us about yeah. how we think about Odysseus? Because that's a very that's a her use of the word is that's a strong word. I'm trying to find it in um Fagels. But his I have that's what I have here. I have Fagels right here. Enticing sleep came upon me, bone weary. So be right. Right before that. Um, this is riveting. Uh, it says reckless folly. Yep. But his plan was bound to fail. Yes, our own reckless folly swept us on to ruin. Yeah, there it is. Line 31 in, in Fagels. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So there's folly again. Reckless folly here. It ruined us. So the word ruin and the word folly are in both of these translations. Mm-hmm. I don't know what you know the other ones say. Um, Tim. Folly so I, is in, Folly's in Lattimore too. So it just must be folly. <laughs> I guess so. So anyway, that, that creates a paradox for us, right? That he, we have this concept of ruining fo- folly that ruins them. That, that's a strong way of putting it. Their folly, our folly ruined us. And then the other side, we have his cleverness. You know, his, the, the concept that he's wise or, or um, 
what's the what's the other word that you said um, that that was in Fagels that you liked, Heidi? Cunning um, or cunning, the cunning, color of yeah. tails? Yeah, cunning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's cunning. He's wise. He's clever. All these things, and yet under his watch, both because of his own decisions and because of the decisions his men make under his watch, their folly ruins them. And there's like a there's a pretty deep paradox in the story there that I think is um in some ways challenging tim do do you do you buy do you see that or is it do you not am i overthinking do this? i see that folly as homer implicating uh odysseus for a moral failing is that the question well am i right to think of it as kind of paradoxical given that we're supposed to also see that he's cunning i guess is maybe the first question right I mean, so we're kind of back to the issue of whether or not his failures are moral or tactical, which I, I almost want to well, say it? that the Greeks didn't think in terms of morality. And, and I, I keep stressing this point that the Greek virtues are, very, are pragmatic. Mm. So like it's, when he says he's going to be a stoic and just um, right by Die, my like, stay among the living like a stoic. <laughs> exactly. Should I be stoical? Should I should I let my should I drown myself or should I let come what may? But the the Greeks were so fatalistic. This idea of moral goodness is is not the same. They didn't think about it the same way we did. They would think about it in terms of what does Odysseus need to do to get home because his his country needs him. Telemachus. I mean, they thought of it in terms of his family, right? Like mm-hmm. Penelope mm-hmm. needs him and Telemachus needs him, but it wasn't this. It wasn't the Christian ethic. Okay, so let's let's go. Let's just let's just view it purely as tactical then. Yes. Even if we view it purely as tactical, on, yeah. Before we go on, I, I want to say something. I, Heidi's ex- exactly right. I think there's another key difference between the way that a contemporary person, even a contemporary Christian, um, thinks about morality and how Odysseus thinks about morality. I think Heidi's exactly right. The Greeks are not thinking in terms of, um, I have like moral categories over here and tactical, pragmatic, you know, category over, categories over here. These are different sorts of things. No, I think it's kind of all grouped under more practical concerns for the Greeks. But there's also a key difference in that um, there's a very strong, how do I say this? When, it's not as if the Greeks don't think about like honor and good behavior and things like that. So they're they're moral categories that they're trafficking in, but those categories are never never untethered the individual from the community. That's right. Family or the town or later, especially for Plato and Aristotle, the polis, the city state. So we are not, we are used to thinking ourselves as somewhat autonomous moral agents that owe duties to different groups or individuals or organizations. But but my moral behavior is sort of, self-determining with reference to something like the Ten Commandments, Christ's injunction to love our neighbor, et cetera, et cetera. But I think for for um, the Greeks, it, it, it's 
the idea of an autonomous self employing that is like exercising moral duties. That's a little bit of that's crazy talk. There, there's not this like big differentiation between the individual and his family, his polis, his community where he lives. And those things are bound so closely together. Right. I think that's true. So then here, the folly is that he sailed for nine days without resting because he was so eager to get home. Right. Is that his folly? Well, I mean, part of the folly is they open the thing that they're not supposed to open. Well, right. But he implicates himself. He says, our great folly. And all he did was go to sleep because he was... So his plan was bound to fail. Yes, our own reckless folly. So to, oh, I'm reading from Fangles. That's not the right translation. But <laughs> that's... <laughs> Well, well the folly ruined us for nine days and nights we sailed and on the 10th our native land appeared so they're within sight and then he falls asleep instead of continuing to row and then well, his it men... certainly reinforces that he's not a god yes and that's what i was just about to say that that's it's his humanity here he, he can't go another he can't keep going because he's human not a god so there's always that tension with Odysseus, and maybe his folly is that he overreaches himself here just by not sleeping sooner. It's something so little, but it represents kind of what we're talking about, about his, is, is the fact that he's so smart, so strategic. So does he then overreach himself in this situation? And that's kind of a foreshadowing of the arrogance that, that he continues to portray in some other situations. On the other hand, if he's just telling the story in a way that makes him look the best, that's right. You know, it makes him seem. I was. I, I mean, for nine days, I was able to stay up, but then in the end, I had to take a little nap. I just had to take a little rest, and then my men ruined everything. Exactly, and I think that's why you. What you brought up today is the crux of the story. When can you believe Odysseus when he's talking? We don't know. We know he lies sometimes. That's very clear. So so it's the reader then. This is how Homer's so brilliant, right? The reader decides, I'm going to believe him here, but not here. And then when you talk about it with each other, we're all pigs saying, oh no, well, I think he's telling the truth here. Well, why? <laughs> right? He's the great tactician. How do we know? That's why it's so good. <laughs> so if you're going to... but I mean, So you guys were talking about the concept of ethics or morals, so to speak, being such as they were to the Greeks being tied to the community, right? Mm-hmm. Couldn't, couldn't one make the case then, you know, devil's advocate, you know, hashtag devil's advocate. Um, <laughs> couldn't, couldn't one say though that, that given his failure ultimately to, to keep his men alive or, or the, or the, the fact that he at times does sacrifice them, that that is in some ways a, um, he's not preserving the community. He's not preserving... I mean, I know we're not to the city-state part yet, but he's not... I'll just leave your community for the sake of conversation. And yeah. thus, there is... To, even to the Greeks there, that would be problematic um, on, on a, quote, moral le- level, even if that's the word they wouldn't use. He let the team down. <laughs> right, yeah. Or he made, or he made choices that, that ultimately doomed the team, even yeah. if he didn't do it on purpose. Well, I think that's... 
as I said, devil's advocate. Sure. No. And I think that that is the, that's a very modern reading of the story, right? Everybody matters just as much as Odysseus and so he lets men die and whatever. But that, and I'm not saying that every, I'm not dismissing that, but because I'm a modern and I live in a democratic society. You, you, care, um, <laughs> you care about people as individual human beings. But the king, the king, like Odysseus needs to be home. It is not the men that are going to make the difference in Ithaca. It's him. It's his presence. And that again goes back to why the Telemachy comes first. That, that it, Homer tells us who are the important people in this story worth saving from the very beginning. And it's Penelope and Telemachus and Ithaca. And so by the time the men come along and start dying, that what they are are expendable resources that add to Odysseus's grief and troubles in getting him home. Their deaths are not personal. We, we barely know any of their names. We know a couple of their names. That's it. But, and the ones that we do know are portrayed barely negatively, so we don't really care when they die. So, and I think if I... Smart by Homer. Exactly. Thinking like a craftsman, the whole point is Odysseus needs to get home and stabilize that country. And oh, by the way, he's great sold because he actually loves those people. And so now it's human. So I was talking to Matt Bianco um, about this recently. And I was saying that I think one of the reasons why this has never been successfully made into a movie or a miniseries or anything like that, I think that even if you had the technology to do it now, and you didn't care what the violence and all the other things that might need to be incorporated into it to make it feel right. I, I think you'd have a hard time with it because <clears throat> the only way you could do it and not have Odysseus seem like a... Well, I don't know if you could do it and make Odysseus seem, as, seem noble because you'd have to give a face to every single one of these people who die. Hmm. They'd have to be an actor. They'd have to have a character's name. There'd have to be an interaction because that's how movies and TV, well, that, like that's the nature of the form. And so when you give them a face and you give them an actor and you give them a voice and they have interactions, then as soon as you sacrifice them, that becomes to a modern viewer an ethical choice that you could not help but judge Odysseus for. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the form itself may be completely antithetical to the ethos in which the story was told. Mm-hmm. I think that would make it really complicated. Um, Anyway, we can move on now. David, David, do you think... I'm going to pull James Bond back into the discussion. Are you just watching a lot of Sean Connery movies? (laughs) No. (laughs) If James Bond, um, in the service to his majesty, had to... Your argument is that if he had to kind of, you know, look the other way and sacrifice a couple of other lesser agents... um, modern viewers would indict him in a way that would make him like implausibly cold or overly, you know, pragmatic or something like that. That's, that's the argument that you're making. Is that right? I mean, I think he'd be, it depends on, I mean, it depends a little bit, but I would, that's what we, that's where we get into the, that's where the anti-hero stuff starts to come into it. But you're, and you're saying that Odysseus would kind of end up being something like an anti-hero because of what he does in the book and because there's this sort of um, disjunct between, between a contemporary sensibility and 
that ancient sensibility. Is that right? Um, I yeah, I mean, I, I think in some ways, I'm not when I say anti-hero. I don't mean I don't think he's going to be like a, become like Tony Soprano or something. I don't think he's like yeah. a mob boss who you end up rooting for, you know, or something like yeah. that. But I think that um, you'd have to be very comfortable with your audience constantly questioning the choices that he's making as relates to his men. Like that. Ha- so if that's the case, and I think that you're on to something. If that's the case, why does it not trouble us? in the pages of the book. Cause in the pages of a book in our imagination, they're faceless pegs. And I think, I mean, I think it probably mm-hmm. does still trouble us a little I, bit, I but I think when it, they're faceless pegs, right? Like we don't even, we don't, we don't, we, you know, they're kind of gray in our imagination, right? Cause the, uh-huh. cause Homer hasn't, our storyteller hasn't done anything to bring them alive for us. We don't get much of any descriptions. A couple of guys, we get very brief descriptions of them and a sense of who they are, but for the, for a show or a movie or something like that, you'd have to, you'd have to craft relationships for these guys to make, to make it work, to make it feel yeah. lived, right. To make it feel realistic. Yeah. Um, and, and I think you'd have to put faces on them that don't necessarily, doesn't necessarily occur for us when we're reading along because it doesn't ask us to, right. Um, it doesn't, we don't, they're just kind of like guys hovering in the back of a cave without, you know, they all look the same, you know, like on a video game when the crowd, like if you're playing a, an old 1990s, uh, <laughs> like a uh, baseball game on, on like a Nintendo, the crowd, they all just look the same, right? Right. In some ways, yeah. like the background characters and books kind of are like that for us. Yes. On t- and the, and the, the nature of an actor himself giving voice, I think letting, letting them scream, for example, <laughs> uh, yeah. would, would alter the way we respond to their death and the actions that are taken that lead to their death. Yeah. Right. I get it. I get it. I think that's plausible. I well, and we're that. not the first generation to judge Odysseus. I mean, the the Romans did, the medievals did. This is it's his ambiguity has a long and illustrious history of finger pointing in <laughs> Which literature. Which might mean he's yeah. actually yeah. actually ambiguous. <laughs> exactly. I think he is. If every generation ever the, has yes. said, well, maybe this guy's ambiguous. Yes. The great tradition has decided that he is a yeah, That's right. <laughs> Let's Whereas talk somebody like, um, we were talking to Heidi this morning about Iago in Othello, who is, mm, yeah, yeah. You know, he is straight up villain. He's not ambiguous. <laughs> Listen to the plays, up. the thing, people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and he, and I think no one is going to argue that Iago is. He's misunderstood. He's ambiguous. No, he's like unequivocally sort of demonic. Villainous. Yeah, but it's, different, it's different than Odysseus. Yeah. Before we go, we're at 55 minutes already. Before we go, let's talk Cersei. I, we, can't, we can't gloss over. <clears throat> maybe we can't do a full hour, but we, we can't gloss over her too much before, that, before we go. Because um, we did this, we talked about Calypso. We've done a little bit on Penelope so far. We'll do much more later. We talked about Calypso and we compared her to Nausicaa or mm-hmm. Nausicaa, however people say her, say her name. Let's bring Cersei into that sort of, let's create a triumvirate here of Nausicaa, Calypso, and Cersei. In what ways is she similar and in what ways is she, does she stand apart as, as a unique character? Mm-hmm. Heidi, where do you, where do you, where do you go with that? So Odysseus likes Cersei. That's the big difference in terms of his response to the woman. He stays there for a year. 
And the language he uses to describe Circe to tell the story of Circe, again, he's telling this story in mm-hmm. Vakia. So mm-hmm. this it is a story within a story. He is unashamedly saying to these people, I want to get home to my wife. I deeply love my wife, but I did stay for a year in Terry uh, uh, in, with the in the arms of a goddess and she helped me on my way. He presents her pretty positively after they start sleeping together. Um, and she's helpful to him. She, she, she helps him get home. She tells him the secrets of going to the underworld, which we haven't talked about in the podcast yet. We'll get there next week. So there's, there's, there's a much more positive experience between Odysseus and Circe. Now his men are going to have a very different perspective on her, <laughs> especially at the beginning because she turns them into pigs. So, um, but that's at least one difference. Hmm. Tim. I, I don't know that I have anything more to add about Circe. I think Heidi just pegged it. She, yeah. I, part of the, uh, to be honest, I'm over here worrying that we're an hour in and we haven't talked about the Cyclops, um, which we'll get to, I know. But I was a little bit preoccupied with my worries about our neglected Cyclops. <laughs> I mean, neglecting the Cyclops seems like the right thing to do. That's what that's what the Cyclops people did. That's exactly they what they should have done. Yeah. Sorry, I was just being a bad podcast <laughs> commentator. <laughs> yeah, I was. Well, I have to own that. Okay. Well, okay. Let's let's do this then, because I, it's funny because funny you mentioned that because as I was reading, I was thinking these two books together are sort of interesting. Um, to compare even the the experiences between Cyclops and Circe, like that Odysseus has with each of them, mm-hmm. um, because they're both sort of um, dangerous, right? And, <laughs> and the they both involve famous. livestock. Yeah, mm-hmm. they do. And they're the, they are the most famous. Like if people, most people, even if yet they haven't read the Odyssey, somewhere along the way have heard through the grapevine about the Cyclops and about the the witch. So. With the Cyclops, they go there and he eats them and some of them, and then they hide and they use the they drive a spear into his eye, and then they use the um the livestock to to escape um and in some ways he's sort of you almost feel sorry for him when they leave um I don't know if that's if that's just me um but you kind of have like I kind of had some. I was like, "Ah, oh, man, he lost his eye." Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Man, I, he only got one of them. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, and then, you know, they go to Cersei, and Cersei. In both cases, it's very dangerous. The big difference, though, is that with Cersei, the reason they survive is because a god comes. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. If with it's the, the Cyclops. Of, yep, it's his cleverness. He, Odysseus, he does throw some of his men to the, well, not the wolves, but you know what I mean. Um, and then, but but in the end, they get away because he he concocts a plan, and um, that was that's one I would would like to see on a movie. Um, and then with Cersei, though, the only reason he escapes is because of Hermes, right? Right. Yep. <clears throat> so yes. it's not his own cleverness. They're two very different escapes. Tim, were you going to say something? I, I think part of what's interesting about the Cyclops is because the action 
is thrilling because we get to see Odysseus at his perhaps most clever. But also, I think the Cyclops is meant to be a sort of idealized stand-in for a barbarian for the Greek eyes. In, in Greek eyes, pardon the pun, eyes. He, <laughs> the Cyclops, live alone. They, they live alone. They have no community with each other. They, I mean, the Cyclops's response, when the men step into his cave, his opening lines to them are hostile, full of antipathy, as opposed to these great kings that we've met through the eyes of uh, Telemachus or Odysseus. The kings welcome their guests before they even know who they are. The Cyclops is the exact opposite, inhospitable from the beginning. And so for me, um, we, we get this introduction to like, kind of like the cyclopic way of life at the bottom of 243 and up to the top of 244. I'm going to read it. So uh, beginning in line 112, they have no councils, have no common laws, but live in caves on lofty mountaintops, and each makes laws for his own wife and children without concern for what the others think. The distance from this cave is another across the water, slantways from the harbor, level and thickly wooded. Countless goats live there, but people never visit it. No hunters labor through its woods to scale its hilly peaks. There are no flocks of sheep, no fields of plowland. It is all untilled, unsown, and uninhabited by humans. Only the bleeding goats live there and graze. Cyclopic people have no red-cheeked red ships and no shipwright among them who build boats and enable them to row to other cities, as most people do, crossing the sea to visit one another. I, I think you can hear... You can kind of like read between the lines there what Homer thinks is normal and good and right, and the Cyclops gets none of it right. He gets none of it right. He's the antithesis of the Greek ethos. Yes. Yes. And he can't and so see because it. of it. <laughs> or right, is he it, can't see is, because of it. Can I can I ask a question about that? Is is yeah. is his is the Cyclops way of life because they only have one eye? I mean, is, is that what you think that's what we're supposed to, I mean, is that, I mean, am I reading too much into that or is it the other way around? <laughs> I don't know, but my understanding of why the Cyclops have one eye and I, I suspect there are multiple myths behind it, but the one that I have heard is that they traded an eye in order to receive the ability to see their future, particularly their death. Mm-hmm. Have you guys heard that? I mean, yes. Yes. Okay. So I don't know. He knew Odysseus was coming to blind him. He knew that. Yeah. Yeah. He should have killed him when he had the chance then. Well, he was no (laughs) man at that time. Because Odysseus tricked him. Yeah. Well, his future didn't involve being able to see what people look like, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) He traded in an eye to not be able to see. That was clever. That's the irony. That, I mean, that's, that's the brilliance of this story. What you just said. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that the um, kind of like underneath the showdown between the Cyclops and No Man, Odysseus, is this kind of clash of social values. It, it's a way of, I mean, it's a way of uh, Odysseus saying, hey, 
we live in community. We do this together and we're more clever than you and we're going to, and we're going to win. You know what I mean? It's, if you guys, do you guys know, um, the funeral oration by Pericles? Yeah. From memory? Yeah. Can you quote it for me, David? (laughs) Can you give me, um, 30 seconds real quick? (laughs) Call it up to mind. (laughs) It's a clash of values in which Pericles is is extolling the Athenian way of life. And he's comparing the Athenian way of life with the Spartan way of life. And, you know, the Spartan way of life is built on military valor. And the Athenian way of life is based on an enjoyment of life. And yet the Athenians are still going to beat the Spartans. You know, it's like, it's like part of the reason that speech is so powerful is that you Pericles thinks that the Athenians can have their cake and eat it too. And he's right. You know, they're going to beat Sparta and the Spartans are going to like suffer and to be in sleeping in hard beds and dormitories meant for militaristic service. Not the Athenians. They enjoy art. They enjoy food and they win at war also. And I kind of get that feeling a little bit, even though totally anachronistic, this is like several hundred years before Pericles speaks, that that Homer is kind of celebrating the Greek way of life has all these wonderful aspects to it. We live in community. We have neighbors. We make laws for one another that bind each other together. The Cyclops has all the advantages of just kind of like doing whatever he wants to do. And he still can't beat us. He can do whatever he wants to do. He still can't beat us. Well, so on 244, I love what you're saying because this, this strike brings something to mind. It says, um, well, I guess on 243, starting with line um, 120, no hunters labor through its woods to scale its hilly peaks. It's talking about the island where the Cyclops live. There are no flocks of sheep, no fields of plowland. It is all untilled, unsown, and uninhabited by humans. Only the bleeding goats live there and graze. Cyclopic people have no red-cheeked ships and no shipwright among them who could build boats to enable them to row across. This is what you read. And then it says, yeah. with boats with boats, they could have turned this island into a fertile colony with proper yes. harvests. And it says, there is flat land for plowing and abundant crops would grow. There is richness underground. The harbor has good anchorage. And he lists all these things. And you almost hear Odysseus saying, oh, Ithaca is a wilderness. And look what we did with it. If we, right. had, had, right. if we had had this island we'd be unstoppable. Like imagine what we could have done with this place. And in some ways it's kind of like a, an even poorer man. Like Ithaca also is kind of a rocky place and stuff like that, but it maybe doesn't have all the benefits of the Cyclopic Island or whatever, whatever that Island is called. But so that, that's, that's really interesting what you're saying there because that it's pretty clear then that Odysseus is buying into that, what you're saying there. He's saying, right. he's yeah. telling, he's telling the people he said the Phaeacians anyway, he's telling them, if we had had this place, imagine what we could do. And they're ruining it. They're wasting it. Yeah, they're wasting it. They have lack of vision for what this place could be. Nice, David. Lack of vision. And That's I exactly think right. Go ahead, the David. heart... I'm sorry, Heidi. I'll shut mm-hmm. up in a minute. I've been like rambling today. The heart of what makes them different is um, the Cyclops live alone. They only live for themselves. The Greeks... They live for each other. They bond with each other. There's this kind of relief picture. They even make laws with each other in mind. And that's what like, keeps them together as a community. And the Cyclops, they don't get it. 
The Cyclops sounds more like the gods than the Greeks. In some ways, that's true. Living without living on their living on their own without a community, without a polis. So we have talked a lot about Odysseus's moral ambiguity today. And I'm going to take a stand here. I love Odysseus. I do think he's an ideal type. I'm a huge proponent for reading him favorably in the Odyssey. Um, and, and, and this little anecdote, which is crucial to the story, I, I'm going to piggyback on what you both have been saying and say Odysseus lives and dies by this code of honor that you guys are talking about, this, this code of community. And that even in the face of this, for, on the next page, on page 247, his men urge him to steal food from Polyphemus. They don't know it's Polyphemus. They just, they're just there. They see how, how much he has. And his men say, let us grab some cheese and quickly drive the kids and lambs out of their pens and down to our swift ships and sail away across the salty water. And he says, he's again, he's telling the story, that would have been the better choice, but I refused. I hoped to see him and find out if he would give us gifts, right? So he wants to give Polyphemus the chance to show that he, to, the chance to show hospitality. Odysseus lives and dies by this honor code. So he's not going to steal food from this guy. He's going to show himself and he's going to give him a chance to act like a civilized person. And he, yeah. And, of course, he huh. doesn't. And like- every time Odysseus lives... Um, hold on. I have one more thing. Yeah, no, Girl, so on, <laughs> on the page before, on page 245, he has a little speech that he gives several times. I think it might be five times, although I'm going to have to figure that out um, in the Odyssey. And it's exactly the same wording when he lands in a strange place. He says, my loyal friends, stay here, the rest of you, while with my boat and crew, I go to check who those men are, find out if they are wild, lawless aggressors or the type to welcome strangers and fear the gods. When Odysseus lands on an island, he says this same speech multiple times. I'm going to go find out if these people practice hospitality, welcome guest friends, that hospitality, that, that idea of Xenia that we've been talking about, the mm-hmm. Greek hospitality. Yeah. Um, and he always gives people a chance to do that before he puts any aggression against them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And that, and uh, so all the way through this, the, the thing that Polyphemus fails at is hospitality again. Yeah. I love that it said, it's, it said that she translated this, that would have been the better choice, but I refused. Yes. Because in some ways it shows like, I, I could have done the more expedient thing. More men may have lived. It would have been easier for us to just steal the food and go. But I lived by the code, even though it was harder. That's right. Yes. It, it may sound like we're talking out of both sides of our mouth by saying he has a code. And he's also kind of like, he does what he wants to do. But I think like the picture of the individual like blossoming within his, his tribe, his community... That's the th- that's the kind of bridge between those two concepts that we keep talking about throughout this book. Hmm. You know, it just struck me. <laughs> they want to steal food from the kids and lambs in the pens, and then run away. And he says no. But then, in when he goes to Cersei's place, 
it like if they had a, would have taken food and gone, they would have taken it from people who had been turned into pigs. Right. So the code and like, I mean, it just that just strikes me as interesting. Like they could have gone and yeah. stolen the food, but you know, if someone else had come and taken food, they would have taken it from his men who were, you know, the food that they would have eaten as animals. They were um, his actual men, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's nothing but kind of a interesting aside, I suppose. But we, it's true. Like embedded within there is all these things that because Odysseus lives like a true Greek following this code of honor and in, in the Iliad, he follows the warrior code here. He follows the Greek hospitality code. And, and, and that is what brings him home. This is to Tim's point that he made earlier that we read within the context of the story. This is what makes him within the story a true hero is he never violates that code ever in the Iliad or the Odyssey. And then he gets his heart's desire. Well, speaking of heart, did you notice what the Cyclops, his code is? Because he basically says this, how what he lives by. He says in 278, I do the bidding of my own heart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't submit himself to any, to any code. Well, yeah. Yeah. It does, it's, yeah. The submission. himself. Yeah, the submission uh submission's the key word there. Because yeah. he doesn't submit to it, he creates it for himself. Yes. yes. <laughs> He's a modern man. He's the Cyclops is the man. modern man. That's right. Well, we should probably do some final thoughts here. So Heidi, I'll let you do a final thought and then Tim, and then we should uh hit the road. Jack. I don't know. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> we should go, log off. <laughs> Board the ship. I, I do have a final thought. It is that I think that when Odysseus leaves after he has tricked the Cyclops and when he is sailing off with his men and they urge him to sit down and he says, No, I will not. And he stands up and he tells this Polyphemus his name. I think that's the crux of the Odyssey. I think that's the whole story right there. And I, when I teach this, I'm teaching the Iliad right now. We're about to do the Odyssey. I This is my favorite thing to teach. I, I have my, my students write an essay on this. We talk about this the whole time. Should Odysseus have told Polyphemus his name? And I have found that those who say no, those who say, no, he shouldn't have. He should have kept quiet. He should have sat down. That would have been the humble thing to do, the right thing to do, the wise thing to do all he did was lose his temper. Those are the people who consistently judge. Those are my students who consistently judge Odysseus and find fault with him all along the way. And they do it here. The other students who say, no, that was the right thing to do. He had to declare himself, be honest, tell tell the Cyclops who has defeated him. Those are the people who tend to, throughout the rest of the story, say see the good and the ideal in Odysseus. And, and so I, I always just ask people, was this an arrogant thing to do? You know, should he have done that? Or was it, you know, was it a, like a righteous thing to do? I've, I've even heard people, I think it was Matt Bianco, Matthew, I'm trying to call him Matthew. That's what he wants to be called. I'm trying to learn. Matt Matthew, when he, he says that this is a Christ-like moment from Odysseus, when he is the same thing as when Christ declares to Satan like that uh, that he has been defeated because Odysseus has been in the cave for three days and he escapes on the third day. 
So I, I think that moment when he says, when he tells him his name is crucial to the story. That's my I thought. It's so interesting that your students kind of, how they, how they divide. And that's kind of the, the point of the wedge in which they divide. That's really interesting. Because it's his emotional moment, right? This is the moment when they see it as he's lost his temper and he's right. making a tactical mistake. Or he didn't lose his temper. He's declaring victory over a defeated foe. And that is a righteous thing to do. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Um, my, my closing thought is we talk about this kind of fulcrum virtue of hospitality that's all throughout the book. And I, I, I just want to say, like, I have, a, I have, when I think of hospitality, I think inviting people over after, after church on Sunday and making a meal for them, which is hospitality. But the, I think the form of hospitality that is trying, that the Greeks are trying to embody is involves a little bit more, it's scary. Like the next time you're driving down the road and you see someone at night and they're walking down the road with a backpack on and you don't know really anything about them. Imagine inviting that person into your home. That's the kind of thick hospitality that the Greeks are after. It's not just making you making a nice meal, but it's also potentially dangerous. You don't know who this person is. You don't know what they're going to do when they're inside your house. Right. There's a lot going on in this book, huh? Yeah. There's a couple things. It's just the best. I, I'm loving this series. So speaking of the fact that this is a series, we are going to discuss books uh, 11 and 12 next week. And then after that, we're going to do a four book uh, section. Um, 11 and 12, of com- I believe this completes Odysseus's story to the Phaeacians. That's right. Am I, am I right about that? Yes. But at, at the end of 12, he's finished and the rest of the story continues. So we'll do that. Um, remember, if you have questions or anything like that, you can post them on the group, send us an email. We'll get to, you know, if you send us something direct, we'll get, try to get to it as soon as we can. And of course, if not, we will be doing our Q&A episode at the end. So um, we'll post a thread for those. But join the conversation if you like. There's already lots of good conversation on the, um, on the Facebook group. Feel free to start threads that cause trouble if you like. And Heidi and Tim and I will stay out of the way and let you guys argue with each other. Um, we'll be like the gods, the Greek gods, and we will sow seeds of discontent or something. Um, <laughs> we'll choose sides. We'll choose sides and then war against each other via your arguments. <laughs> wow. I love this. Um, All right. Well, thanks to you both for being here. We'll be back next week for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, for all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern. Thanks for listening. Thanks for reading along. Happy reading. We'll talk to you next week. to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. 
So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.